Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. Our next guest is a great person to talk about Bay Area real estate, Susan Lowenberg. She's president of Lowenberg, a corporation based in San Francisco. Susan, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Mike. When, when, when people think about the San Francisco or Bay Area real estate, I think they think about the residential side and people being priced out of their homes and they can't move here and the cost of living is maybe even worse than New York. But you focus on the industrial side of the market. Tell us about how that market is today. Is that as perhaps overheated as a residential side? It is amazingly overheated. Um, we are shocked at the rents we're getting. Uh, we're getting rents you know, 30 40% higher in industrial than we had underwritten deals for for years. Um, it's part of the barrier we have here is there's a huge demand and growth due to the internet business and new businesses developing that send out, they don't need the bricks and mortar of a retail, but they act like one over the internet. So that changed the business greatly and caused a huge upsurge in demand. The other thing we're really facing in the barrier is the cost of construction. When you talk about, it's not just the price of land going up. It's every metal stud has gone up, goes up two to three times a year in cost. You know, uh, all the things that go into building a building, rebar, metal. Yeah. Um, what municipalities are looking to developers to balance their budgets. I mean, so Susan, you're actually in the hottest area of commercial real estate right now. Fulfillment centers, warehouse space. People yep. are saying this is the area to get into given how the Amazon, the Amazonification yes, of I'm retail. Thank you. I, I <laughs> yeah. really, it struggled. Uh, it struggled yeah. on my tongue. Um, I'm just wondering how much competition you're seeing right now. And, you know, with pricing, do you think that you're getting good value right now? On a buy? No, yeah. I think the values are terrible. We haven't bought anything <laughs> since 2014. All right. Because you've got two things going on. You've got money being very cheap. You've got rents being at their historical highs. I mean, beyond the beyond. We, and um, less than 20 years ago, we underwrote a project here in San Francisco, and we thought maybe if we could get 70 to 80 cents a square foot, we're hitting it out of the park. We we just did a deal at two fifty, two dollars wow. and yep. fifty cents. I mean that's true. So the cost of goods and the cost of you know, are going up. How they say there's no inflation, I don't personally get. <laughs> well, but, but so so then I'm wondering who's buying and, and you know are are they at risk of some some pretty big losses? We, um, you know here's the deal. I mean, I think that the difference for someone like me who I buy one off, I buy one building, I go after, I chase buildings. When you're a REIT. You're not, that one building doesn't have to stand on its own. It gets put into a big portfolio, and if it performs at 2%, it gets absorbed in that great deal that you did 10 years ago that's pumping out, you know, 15, 20%. So when you put those together, you get a good return. You get a stock return. You don't get a real estate return. And REITs fundamentally change the way people look, or the way REIT people, they can buy things at a lower cap rate than we can. So if we ask you to kind of put, look into your crystal ball a little bit, how long can this Bay Area expansion continue? Because it just, it's been uh, 10 years plus. Uh, I, I said it was going to be 17. Okay. I said it was going to be 18. <laughs> I said it was going to be 19. Um, you know, there's got to be a correction. We're not going to see 08 again. We're just not going to see 2008 again. Is the Bay Area losing opportunity? Business, I mean, I'm not going to move my fulfillment center here if it's so, so expensive. Why wouldn't I go to Austin, Texas or Omaha or Salt Lake? Well, where or? are your customers? 
Right, well, presumably I'm just kind of sending it everywhere, right? Am I not? I don't know. I guess you would, but, you know, look, people want to live here. Yeah. You yep. know, at the end of the day, you know, I, I'm a native San Franciscan. I was born here. And it kills me when people who've moved here 10, 15, two years ago say, oh, the city has changed. <laughs> oh, my God, the city has changed. And I say to them, okay, here's the deal. If you don't want to live in a dynamic, diverse, totally exciting city, move to with all due respect, Topeka, move to a small town in the Midwest. It'll be fine. You'll enjoy it. It'll be great. Go with the one summer. But if you want to be in a dynamic city that, you know, you've got food, you've got arts, you've got, you know, you can go skiing in two hours. You know, this is it. People want to live here. Yeah. Well, no, I, and I hear you. And, 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 you know, just to speak to uh, what you're talking about, Paul, as we were driving in, we just saw all the cranes oh, just coming yes. up. I mean, every couple of yeah. feet, you just see a crane, uh, yeah. just buildings coming up. I'm wondering, you're talking about how you haven't bought anything since 2014. Are you selling? Uh, we have sold a couple things. We have sold, we're, we're very good buyers and we're terrible sellers. <laughs> what, do you, what do you mean by that? Be, I don't like to sell. Well, I mean, but, I but, never met anything I didn't want to buy. Well, so. but 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 I'm wondering, were you compelled to sell because they were the prices sales. because the prices were just so high? No, oh, no, no, no. That's not my. That would not be my motive. If that would be, then I'd be out. Of, then I would retire and just play golf. Then well, I, so I would just sell the business. Because keep so keep in mind our the way we have constructed our small business is it's all about cash flow. People say to me, what's your portfolio worth? I have no idea, and I could care less. It's worth what someone's going to buy it, what's going to pay me for it. The things we have sold have been like a single-tenant building that was sort of special purpose. The tenant wanted to buy it. A user wanted to buy it. They were more strategic sales than they were um, uh, aspirational sales, let's call it, you know, or taking advantage of this heated market. Because our our whole thing is that we would rather have really good and healthy cash flows to disperse to our partners and to ourselves than worry about value because the rent is more important to us. Are, are, the, are the lending, is the lending community here concerned about the inflated asset be. values? I would be. But the capital is still available? No, it's still available because it's, yes, the capital is yep. absolutely still available. We're speaking with Susan Lowenberg, president of the Lowenberg Corporation, who is speaking here at the Eisner Amper Real Estate Summit in San Francisco. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, you said that we're not heading toward another 2008 collapse. Can you give us some analogy? What are we heading toward? A correction. So what does that look like? 10%, I th- 20%? I think, it, I, think it's, I think it could be 20. 20%. I think it could be 20, depending on what happens with trade. So now, okay, here's something inverse that's going to totally countersay what I'm doing. So now with China, my understanding is in the wine industry where we're very heavy, um, the wine is not, they're putting the brakes on exporting wine to China because China's saying, oh, well, you know, you want, they're playing that game. Well, <laughs> they got to put it somewhere. Every year, that wine's got to come off the vines. It can they come into put, my home. I mean, I, I can, we can I'll, arrange for that. Uh, yeah, okay, well, I'm, <laughs> we I'm, I'm, I'm going to put my shingle up, yeah, you right. know. I would. I would, Lord. We can easily have stuff delivered to you. You mentioned the wine uh, country. How did the fires impact any of your properties? Because there was such terrible news, such terrible yeah. loss. Yeah, it didn't affect it at all. Okay. We had It virtually had no effect, other than my partners calling me constantly saying, have we burned down yet? And I'm saying, no, we're fine. No, but, right. but, but it does raise a question, especially as we hear about climate change and some of the effects uh, with respect to drought, with respect to fires uh, in California. How, how, how are your colleagues responding to that? I think everybody's got their head in the sand. 
I don't think people were really responding to it all that Head in much. the sand and high valuations. It sounds great, Paul. Yeah, yeah this sounds yeah. like a market <laughs> waiting to just topple. It's yeah, not going to topple that much, though, because right. you just have, there's too much demand to be here. People want to live here. It's a great place. First of all, if you're not, I guess Austin, Texas would be one. You could truck it in from Houston. You could, you know, if that's where your market is. But with so much product, I have an apartment that overlooks the bay. All I see are, thank you very much, <laughs> and I'll probably lose it in the downturn. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you see just container ship after container ship after container ship coming through the bay. And then you see these ships leave half filled. I mean, there are so many products coming in here that are being distributed from here. Yeah. What about the tax changes? I mean, I know that people have been talking about how, you know, this all deductions, how that's affecting property values and it's affecting where people are deciding to live. I mean, I understand with industrial properties, there's a lag time with respect to where people live and then how that affects into the commercial properties. But I'm just wondering, you know, is that something that people are talking a lot about? You know, I'd, I would be nervous, to be honest with you, about if I were a uh, home builder. I, I'd be kind of, I'd be a little nervous right now. I'd be cautious about what I were going to bring out of the ground. Because I'll give you an example. Um, my assistant, uh, I got her into a house. It was great. She, we, she saved. It was, you know, I showed her how it would all work and she could deduct the interest and the property taxes. Well, her deduction, she got back last year, $4,000. She told me this year she got 1900 Yeah. Right. Yep. But she's in the house though. So she's not going to go, she's not going to lose the house. She's just not going to spend as much. Yep. Right. Cause she doesn't have that extra what, 3100 you know, whatever the number is, $2,100 to go maybe buy some new clothes or buy a washer-dryer. So that's going to have some effect. Yep, and, that's, we, we, and we've seen that on the, uh, the East Coast as well, in the metro New York area. Yeah. Susan Lowenberg, thank you so much. Susan is president of Lowenberg uh, Corporation, joining us live uh, here in San Francisco at the Eisner Amper Real Estate Conference. Susan, thank you so much. Well, we're about halfway through the first quarter earnings season. I think, by and large, we're going into earnings. People were, I think, uh, pretty bearish, looking for a 3 to 4% decline in the S&P earnings. Numbers seem to have come in a little bit better to see how much better. Uh, we welcome our next guest, Gina Martin-Adams. Gina is the chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. Uh, she is in the Bloomberg 1130 studio. Gina, thanks so much uh, for joining us. What is your take here a little more than halfway through uh, the quarterly earnings season? Um, thank you for having me, Paul. So far, so good. Uh, as you alluded to, expectations were pretty low, so you know, take it for what it's worth. But companies are on track to print about a one percent decline in earnings year over year. That uh, assumes that everyone who was reported, uh, plus all of the expectations, come in as as expected. We'll get about a one percent decline in earnings on a year over year basis. That's obviously substantially better than the 4.1% decline that uh, analysts were expecting at the start of the season. So companies are beating what I would consider to be a very low bar. The yes. big change over the last week relative to prior weeks was actually we had more companies even guide for better earnings for 2019 as a whole than guided lower. And this is a big shift because for months and months and months now, we've had companies, you know, kind of hammering down forward expectations as a component of every earnings season. If we can continue to see this uh, recovery and guidance emerge and, and then over the next several weeks, that could really start to shift expectations and 
change some people's opinions with respect to the outlook for earnings. I don't think a lot of people are expecting a whole lot this year. This is important. I want to just make sure we get that right and kind of hammer it home. Over the past week, more companies have upgraded guidance going forward for the rest of the year uh, than anything Mm -hmm. else. Uh, That's really interesting to me. I'm wondering, where is that growth coming from? Well, it's unfortunately, Lisa, what we find is very few companies actually provide guidance anymore (laughs) these days. So we don't want to read too much into it. But frankly, the biggest driver of the turnaround in growth is a turnaround from earnings suppression in the first half to slightly better performance in the second half for more cyclical industries. In particular, those industries that are exposed to overseas economic conditions, tech and industrials really stand out. Uh, Groups that had a bigger compression in earnings expectations on tougher comparisons in the first half of this year, their comparisons ease into the second half year. Some of that is due to tax. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's not one big story driving recovery. I think it's different industries and sectors that are experiencing really strong decline in the first half of this year with a modest bounce back expected in the second half. So, Gina, we heard from the Fed uh, and the chairman yesterday, uh, kind of uh, still on the sidelines, kind of status quo. So my guess is that kind of brings the earnings picture or, or keeps the earnings picture very much in focus for investors. So how do you think about the back half of the year? Clearly, I think the expectations were for a better second half of the year. Uh, does that still hold for you? Yeah, it does. I think for the market, it's going to be a story of more give and take, right? The first part of this year has been all about valuation expansion driven by much easier than expected Fed policy, at least much easier than expected back in December, right? And that shift in Fed policy has allowed for a rally in bonds, which has elevated valuations in the equity market. Now, the Fed seems to be pretty, you know, presenting a pretty persistent message of, yes, we're on hold. We don't know if that next move is going to be up or down. So we're data dependent. Now that creates a different environment for stocks, right? We've already re-rated to anticipate much easier uh, monetary conditions. Going forward, we have to contend with this whole, is it Goldilocks or is it not? Because if growth gets too hot, that's great for earnings, but that's not great for bond prices and multiples. It's not great for our anticipated Fed increase, Um, right? So I, I think that you could have tighter monetary policy slightly offset a better growth into the second half, which just creates a more volatile condition, a dicier situation for stocks than that which existed in the first half, it doesn't necessarily eliminate the overall bull trend. So I, I want to get your sense on the micro uh, aspects of the macro that we're seeing. We saw productivity jump the most since 2014 in the first quarter. I'm wondering how much of this is people are actually uh, you know, just working harder and then are going to get paid for it, and how much is it that frankly, companies don't have to pay people as much as perhaps they would have otherwise had to pay them, and they're just working harder. In other words, uh, those margin pressures just aren't there to the degree that we expected them to be, right? Yeah, I I think that that's a really good point, Lisa. And it's, um, you know, the answer is very TBD. I think one of the things we struggle with is economic data, uh, you know, is going to very accurately capture what we pay in a monetary wage but may not accurately capture payments of other forms, right? Increasingly, individuals um, in the workforce are getting paid via healthcare allowance. They're getting paid via other forms of benefits, not necessarily through accelerating wages, which are much easier to measure. So as opposed to, you know, flashback to the 1950s and 1960s, when a lot of these measurements were developed, you could just measure an average hourly wage, 
Now, half of our workforce is on a salary, not an average hourly wage. Um, many of our, much of our workforce has, you know, additional benefits that are paid through corporations. That was certainly not the case uh, 50 years ago. So I think part of it is a measurement issue. Uh, what we see in the S&P 500, frankly, is quite a bit of evidence that suggests companies have a degree of pricing power. Um, instead of recording sort of pressures with respect to escalating payments to companies, the pressures on the margin lines are more about companies spending a little bit too much, an environment of slower revenue growth. So there's a lot of moving parts in the story. I'd say that the biggest, the biggest problem is the economic data doesn't always match up with the experience uh, of corporate America. So, Gina, we're you know ten plus years into this economic cycle. We've stock markets back are near all all time highs. What sectors tend to perform better in such an environment? I mean, where should in investors kind of be thinking from a sector perspective? Yeah, I think every cycle is different. Um, in terms of our sector allocation model right now. It implies that you probably want to approach the market with something of a barbell strategy, where and it fits very well with this notion that the easy gains are done. We're moving from an environment in which the rising tide lifted all boats to an environment where investors have to contend with, yes, earnings growth is probably going to improve, but uh, if it does, it probably means that the economy is strengthening, and that may mean tighter monetary policy going forward. So you balance those two things. And I think the result of that is you want a mix of cyclical and defensive industries toward the top of your sector allocation. One thing we've seen all cycle is growth stocks outperforming value stocks. I don't yeah. think any evidence has a surface to suggest that that strategy is suddenly going to flip on its head. Yeah. Uh, growth is still very, very much in demand, still continues to outperform value, uh, despite you know investors that are pounding the table on these valuation spreads widening. I think structurally, when you're in an environment of very, very slow growth and very little inflation pressure yeah. with a flat yield curve, it's just it just promotes growth. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much uh, for taking the time out of your very busy schedule. Gina Martin-Adams, Chief Equity Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, and when she talks about a flat yield curve, indeed. And I think San Francisco, most people would agree, is kind of the birthplace of the gig economy. Start your own company, start your own website, start your own app. But when you do that, you need a place to work. And that is why shared workplaces have become really commonplace in this new economy. Uh, Elton Kwok is a general manager for the North California region for WeWork, one of the largest shared workspace companies. He joins us here live. Elton, thanks for joining us. Thank you so, very much for having me. I mean... You've got to have the easiest job in the world. I mean, I could rent space in the Northern California Bay Area market. How hot is it? It's amazing. So we started off here in the Bay Area in 2011. The company we work started in New York City in 2010. And since then, we have 30 locations here in the Bay Area, over 10 cities. Uh, so we go anywhere from San Jose all the way up to Mill Valley. And then we just recently announced Sacramento as well. So no matter where you live or work, you have a place to be. So one thing that I'm struggling to understand is what's the barrier to entry here, especially as other com commercial real estate operators start to think, you know what, the gig economy is here to stay. We're going to do cooperative workspace too. 
Definitely. So as a member, there's actually no barrier to entry. What we do is we provide flexible workspaces for any size of company. So whether you're a Fortune 500 company or you're an entrepreneur, you could sign up today and start working tomorrow, actually. Um, and you don't have to pay the capital expenses. You don't have to design the offices. Everything is done for you. Um, if you are another, I guess, industry leader trying to get into the co-working space, uh, that might be a little bit tough, uh, just because we have 400 locations around the world, and that is continually to grow every single day. Uh, on average, we actually open two locations a day, which is pretty exciting globally, and what what, why that's important is because a member at one location is a member around the globe, and you really have membership anywhere, and so you have a home to, and a place to work. So what is uh, kind of a, a typical WeWork member? Um, is it kind of a single person? Is it a small company? What's a typical one look like? Absolutely. So our enterprise business is growing tremendously, and we started that in 2017, really. Uh, over 30% of our member base now is enterprise companies, and they take full floors, they take an entire building, and we do everything full service for them, uh, from designing, building, and then operating the space with our community management teams. Uh, so that is a growing segment. We also have an MLB segment where if you're medium to large size business, you can get a full space, a headquarters space for you. Uh, so no longer do you have to go through the hassle of finding your own real estate and then finding your own general contractor and then architecture firm, all that is provided uh, through us, uh, which makes it really easy. And then we have the creative community that is part of the uh, WeWork community. And that is our heart and bread and butter. And it keeps the energy alive in our spaces. And in every single WeWork location that you go to, you'll see uh, a membership level such as hot desks or dedicated desks or some private offices that are for the smaller uh, companies to allow them to groom and we also connect them with other community members to grow. So uh, WeWork did uh, file confidentially for an initial public offering and it raises a question about the growth opportunity. You're talking about some of the growth areas, but the degree to which growth can accelerate given the fact that WeWork, I believe, is the biggest commercial property user uh, in both San Francisco as well as in New York. So already kind of saturated in those areas. Given that fact, I mean, these are all sort of marginal uh, sort of gains. Is there another sort of big acceleration in the growth of WeWork? So what I would say in terms of WeWork is we're a global platform. And with our member base, we can do a lot with that. Um, the WE company as a whole now has different avenues and business lines that um, we play a part in. So we have WeWork, which is the workspace mission. And then we have We Live, which is our living mission. And then we have We Grow, which is our education mission. Uh, so through that, we're building really communities outside the walls of just WeWork. How much traction have you gotten with We Live and We Grow? So the two of those are just beginning, and they're really exciting. We're getting a lot of demand. Um, both of them are in New York City right now. Um, we're looking for expansion, uh, but those are just in the early stages, and I think there's a, a bright future ahead for us. So in this Northern California Bay Area, we've heard all day how expensive real estate is, how new construction is expensive. What are the economics for WeWork uh, in this marketplace? Definitely. So... For WeWork, I think the, the value add that we're able to provide for companies uh, coming into the Bay Area is a flexible workspace. And as you know today, companies are so agile. They're growing so fast. Their headcount projections are changing every single day. And the flexibility allows them to really kind of take care of their business and not have to work about the facilities management aspect or the office space management aspect. And if you're adding another 10 to 100 people tomorrow, you need the flexible space to grow without adding a 10-year lease. And WeWork allows you to do that on flexible terms. Terms. But it costly for you to get, I mean, most, for you to get the space, it's very expensive. So you're bearing that big cost, right? We have relationships with some of the largest landlords, and we continue to grow that presence and the portfolio presence with landlords uh, across the world, really. Uh, so 
definitely, it is expensive. We work, and um, I would say the real estate market here is expensive. But I think the beauty about WeWork is we're able to go into any city around the world. And our entrance into San Mateo, our entrance into Palo Alto, our entrance into Sacramento are just a few examples where we're able to connect the workforce to the places where people want to work, which also decreases commute times for a lot of people. So companies don't necessarily need to be in San Francisco exactly. Yes, we know that a lot of tech companies want to have presence, but they don't need to have their entire headquarters here. And we provide them with that agile workspace solution to, to provide for that. But if they also want to have a presence in San Jose as well as San Francisco, yeah. they can do that. Yeah. And they don't have to work with too many different operators to make that happen. Elton Kwok, thank you so much for spending the time. Absolutely. Elton Kwok is general manager for the Northern California region at WeWork, joining us here from the Eisner Amper Real Estate Summit in San Francisco. Tesla is in the market with uh, an offering of stock and bonds, a little over $2 billion as it tries to shore up its balance sheet to see uh, get some deeper analysis of this. We welcome Joel Levington. Joel is a senior credit analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. He joins us on the phone. Joel, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, it seems like a move in the right direction for this company in terms of its balance sheet. Is it enough? Paul, you're you're absolutely right. And uh, I think it is enough, certainly for uh, 2019 and 2020, uh, if you assume that the company should be at least free cash flow, uh, break even, and I think it should be a little bit better than that, uh, it should be able to pay down all of its debt maturities uh, over the time frame and also keep uh, a decent amount of liquidity on the balance sheet. So, Joel, can we just talk about the capitulation here? Because this really is capitulation. And basically, Elon Musk had been coming out and saying, we don't need more capital. We're doing great. Now it comes out, we need more capital. We need it from the equity markets. We need it for the debt markets. I mean, what, what caused this, this sort of turnaround here? Well, I think it boils down to, Lisa, is operational execution. You know, if you look at what he was saying uh, on the earnings call just a week ago, is that he really wanted to hold capital tight and force his company to perform better. Uh, that hasn't worked out the way that he had hoped for uh, and, as a result, needs additional liquidity. So I would say, you know, he bent on his company. The company hasn't performed the way it needs to and hence needs the band-aid of additional liquidity right now. So, Joel, how has uh, Tesla's bonds performed? It's, I mean, if you're, if you're a bond investor in this company, you're really taking some risk here. The company, as you noted, really hasn't had any. They've been free cash flow negative. So how have the bonds performed and kind of what's the expectation here? Sure. Uh, that's a great question. Uh, the, the bonds have actually traded in a pretty narrow range between $84 and $88 uh, you know, over the past year or so. And today they're up about a point and a half, so at about 86 and a half. So they're right in the range that they have been. Uh, that said, the auto sector has performed very well this year uh, on, on risk-adjusted returns, and so it has been a major laggard. So, you know, like, where do you go from here? I don't really think it breaks out of its range uh, until it can show some operational improvement. If that's shown, I do think that uh, you could see the bonds, um, you know, see more mean reversion than what's already happened today. So here, I'm struggling. Uh, great. You, you did put this into perspective in, in a really great way, Joel, which is basically, yeah, there's a rally, but it's pretty tepid, right? We're not talking about massive gains here in, in the bonds. Uh, I'm trying to figure out why investors are constructive at all on this capital raise, given the fact that Tesla seems to be burning through, the ca uh, through, burning through their cash. And, and frankly, the capitulation does speak to execution issues. 
You're totally right, Lisa. I think with a lot of deals that are going on, particularly in autos, which, uh, you know, as an example, Adyen did the same thing a couple of weeks ago. It's really on the hope or promise for a stronger tomorrow is what you're banking on if you're an investor right now. Uh, and that, um, you know, at least with, that, with, with both companies, actually, uh, hasn't turned out to be the right call. Uh, eventually, I think that will be for Tesla. But, um, you know, again, you, you kind of wonder how long it'll be, given that they've repeatedly missed uh, expectations. To, to me, I guess the, the key catalyst here after the liquidity event would be to get a COO in place that would be a strong operator. How about a senior management team that actually stays? Um, the, Ooh, sick burn. <laughs> yes, right. So the question I have, so if you're an equity or, or bond investor here, what is, what's kind of the metric, the one or two metrics that you're looking at from an operational perspective that tells you, hey, I think they've really got this thing going? That's a great question, Paul. I would say the two things that people really look to are the volume uh, of production that comes out, and that's really on the Model 3. And I think what, what people are really focused on is getting uh, volume at uh, 7000 a week or higher. And then I think the other thing that you have to look at is operating margins uh, and moving those towards peer-like uh, levels, which would be an EBITDA margin, somewhere in kind of like the 9 to 11% range. If you could do that, you'd have a, a much stronger profile here. At a certain point, could the positive sort of movement that we're seeing in the bonds and the stocks, the stock is up 2.2%, also come from the fact that Elon Musk is sort of being realistic? Uh, I think so. And, you know, I think really what's, what's embedded into the stock are two issues. One was uh, a liquidity concern that, would, that continued to grow, and the other is the execution issue. Today, what you're seeing is an alleviation of the financial risk side, right? The liquidity will be fine, it'll be sound, and it's a reminder that a $50 billion company can go back into the capital markets and get more money if it needs to. Right. The other side remains a wide-open question, and, um, and unfortunately, today, you won't resolve that answer. Right, but right now, people are interested in the immediate and not necessarily the long-term. Joel Levington, thank you so much for being with us. Joel Levington, Senior Credit Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.